We tie so much of our identities into being a mum, being a whatever profession you're in, so for me a lawyer, you know, that sometimes in amongst all of that we lose sense of who we are ourselves, right? Devoid of these titles. And so it's, you know, I think once you can understand, okay, who am I to begin with? And what does that mean in terms of what I value, what I need out of life, what motivates me, what makes me passionate, what makes me get out of bed in the morning, what are the things that give me joy, you know, all of those sort of components, what gives me purpose, etc. Then I think we're better able to step back from the things that we do in life, so the titles that we or the roles that we have, and go, what is serving me and what isn't serving me here? You're listening to another episode of Success with Purpose, where we hold conversations with the most holistically successful people we have the opportunity to connect with. We explore their journeys, their life-changing events, their perspectives, their mindset, and most importantly, their purpose. I'm Harry Goldberg, host, interviewer, and interrogator of this podcast, father of the most incredible daughter in the world, husband of an incredible woman, and director and empowerment coach at Purpose Advisory. Hope you enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe and like below. Now, let's begin. Nidhi, welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you. Uh, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation, uh, mainly because you're an exceptional example of someone who's gone to uni, studied hard, became a lawyer, worked harder, achieved great results, uh, became a lawyer in 2003, and until just recently, so this will be a fun update, uh, you were head of legal function in Australian Pacific Islands at Philip Morris. But I'd say that's the boring side of your story. Because throughout that journey, you've had children, leadership roles, both difficult and inspirational managers. And where it gets exciting is that we get to hear your voice as an outspoken, authentic, and passionate advocate for a range of work issues, especially mental health, flexibility, uh, recognition, pregnancy loss, gender equality, uh, and also especially for uh, women coming back into the workplace. So before we dive any further, I'm really keen to hear from you. How do you define success? Yeah, so success, I think, look, if you'd asked me this question 10, 15 years ago, it would have been very much career-driven and very much about, you know, where you are on the ladder because mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what we're conditioned to think of success as. But the last couple of years in particular have just sort of taught me that, you know, there's 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 more to life and and actually, for me, success now is about finding that thing that really fulfills you, that really, you know, gives you joy, not satisfaction, because I was satisfied. I was satisfied with my job and everything else for a long time. But really what gives you that deep sense of I know that there will be no regrets, you know, down the track, that I have led my life intentionally and with purpose and that I can honestly say, you know, yes, I've, I've been fulfilled through what I've done and who I've mm. been, not just what I've done, but who I've been. So what happened in the last few years that really guided you to that then? Yeah, it's been interesting, right? It's um, So I think, look, when the pandemic started, it um, 
it actually, it really shook me because I have autoimmune issues and it was the first time I think ever in my life I've really had to look at my mortality sort of head on and go, wow, I don't know what tomorrow holds anymore, you know. And even though I'd had these issues for I don't know, eight years or something before before the pandemic started, and they had been bad at times. I'd never really had that sense of tomorrow's uncertain. But all of a sudden, in the midst of this uncertainty, the pandemic really made me sit up and go, wow, all these things I've been putting off to another day and all these things I've been saying to myself aren't quite aligned or there's something missing or perhaps down the track I need to start doing stuff about the social justice issues I care about. I was like, that day has to be now because there may not be another day, right? And so that for me was a massive, massive wake-up call. And it really started an intense period of reflection and self-reflection for me just on life to date, where life was at at that point in time, where life was going, and just sitting back from that all and thinking, what is it that is going to fill this hole, this, you know, this thing that's been missing from my life? Because I hadn't felt fulfilled in my career. You know, I'd enjoyed it. I'd been satisfied by it. I'd been intellectually stimulated by it, but not fulfilled. And so I was like, how do I fill this gap. And so that was, I guess, the start of the pandemic. And then interestingly, on the side, and the two things were not joined at this point in time, but on the side, I'd started writing on LinkedIn. And that purely for me was about talking to people I knew, like it was just literally, you know, there's no more water cooler chat. I've returned to the workplace in the middle of the, well, at the start of the pandemic, not in the middle, at the start of the pandemic with a seven-month-old and a six-year-old who's now doing remote learning. Life is chaotic. I need to somehow express what's going on for me through something, and that something ended up being writing. And I'd always really enjoyed writing, but it kind of fallen away for, I don't know, decades really, not since I was at school had I written in this same way. Um, And so... I found myself writing a lot and as I was writing, I also was reflecting a lot on life and on what was going on for me and there was a moment, I think, where I started realising, you know, this is actually helping other people and helping other people is somehow helping to lift my own energy and giving me a sense of purpose and then slowly I connected the dots and went these two things have something to do with each other (laughs) you know the the missing hole that I've had and now the energy that I'm getting from writing and not just writing but actually doing stuff behind the scenes as well because I'd started reaching out to people and started investigating how I could get involved for example with racial equity stuff when the George Floyd thing incident happened you know I was really unsettled by that and wanted to do something to make a difference not just donating money but actually really getting out there and doing something about it so I started chatting to people so all these little things were suddenly starting to gel and I was like I feel like I'm finally finding 
purpose. So that that was, I guess, the start of it for me, really. Okay, so you're you're now talking about purpose, and that was you said you shared that in the context of fulfillment. Mm. Uh, can you get clear on the difference for you between satisfaction and fulfillment? I think you even compared satisfaction with joy. Are you able to get a bit clearer on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, I think satisfaction is. So I, I think I've been satisfied through my career, right? And so for me, that has looked like the work has been interesting. I've enjoyed what I've done. I've worked with some great people. Um, I've experienced some great things through my career. You know, so I was satisfied. Like I was, I was okay. Life was okay. Life was good, right? But there was this deeper need to leave something behind I guess it's almost like a legacy right like it was like if I look back on my life what can I say I'm proud of having done and or or, you know proud of having been and how can I look back and say I made a difference and for me that's what fulfillment was about it was really reaching in and going I need to do something more. I need to be something more. And for me that I've realized has been or is being in service of people in spaces where I'm passionate about change. So, for example, now, fast forwarding to now, you know, I'm really passionate about gender equity. I'm really passionate about racial equity and that sort of intersectional lens to gender equity. And so for me it's okay how do I make a difference in these areas? And I think, you know, as someone who's been in the corporate world for a long time, there's a bit of imposter syndrome there too, right? Because you think, well, you know, I'm talking, but what difference am I making to anyone? But I think over time I realized actually, you know, the difference that I'm making is one, I might be reaching someone out there that needs to see this thing today. And for that person, at that moment, that is what they needed to get out of bed, to attack their day differently, to change direction, to do whatever it is that they needed to do, right? So that that's one. And secondly, it's about having that voice and about articulating these things out loud and not being afraid to do that and not being afraid of the people who might come back and say, but hang on, I don't agree or, you know, you're not making sense or whatever it is or even worse, right, because you do get trolls and stuff. But so it's it's really standing up and going, I'm not afraid to stand in my truth and what I believe to be the truth and to put it out there and to see if I can make a difference. And that's translated as well for me as a parent into how I parent, right? So it's the external difference that perhaps I'm making, but also that, you know, just within my family, how can I then translate that into meaning for my daughter in particular? Mm. Does that does that help explain it? Yeah, it, it does it does explain a lot more. You're yeah. attempting to share your voice for people who struggle to share their own. Mm-hmm. And because people aren't sharing their own voices, they feel like they can't be heard or they feel yeah. like they're alone as well and that no one else knows how they're feeling because they must be the only one that's going through this particular challenge. 
And then your yeah. hope is that you're sharing your voice and letting them know, hey, you're not the only one. And yes. then I'm guessing your further hope is that then there are a whole bunch of other people who will comment and share and reshare and say, this has been me as well. And yeah, like not the Me Too movement, but the, yeah, I, I also experienced that. And yeah, that's me exactly. as well. Exactly. And I think if I reflect on what you just said around not being alone, I think for me, there was a pivotal point, I guess, in my life over the last five years, I would say, where that really became important. And that was when I had my pregnancy losses, right? So, mm. you know, because I did feel alone in those experiences and it wasn't as if I didn't know other women who hadn't gone through it, but because it is so unspoken, I, I, I didn't feel a sense of, you know, there are other people that have gone through it and I'm not alone and, you know, people understand my grief. And so for me now, even talking out about pregnancy loss is about creating that space for other people that I didn't feel I had when I went through it. And so, and it's the same for me, you know, in other areas as well. It's, it's taking my own experiences and saying, right, we need to put a voice to some of this and help other people feel that there are other people out there that understand what they're going through and that won't reach to reach out to them with pity, but will reach out to them from a space of compassion. Mm. Yes, well, and the compassion I, I imagine comes from having empathy first, right? Exactly. As opposed to the sympathy of, yes. oh no, it's so hard. Yeah, I've had a I've had a manager that doesn't understand me either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not quite the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it, I, I've got. I'm sure that we'll have plenty of time to be able to discuss those things. I've got plenty of questions, but maybe before we dive into it, how would you describe your journey? And feel free to go back as far as you like. I had. I think I've had one guest who went back to the 1600s of his family history, but maybe <laughs> maybe to childhood. You don't need to go back that far. Um, oh, but what, what's, been, what's been your journey? What's been my journey? So, I mean, I guess I will go back to childhood because I think it's relevant. But um, so I grew up in a uh, Indian household in um, Australia. We moved around a lot when I was a child, but we then settled in Australia when I was around about eight. Um, and, you know, growing up in a Indian family, um, kind of met the stereotype of, you know, education was really important. Having a career was really important. Getting married was also very important. Um, so there were these sort of expectations and I had always been a quiet high achiever. So I had always done very well for myself at school. And so there were expectations around what that would translate to as I got older and I'm one of two girls right so we were both expected even as girls to do well and to have careers and and everything else for which you know I'm thankful to my family but so we so I worked really hard I studied really hard I um, got really good grades didn't know what I was doing but decided okay I'll do law why not with commerce because you did you used to do double degrees at that point generally if you did law. Um, so I did commerce and law and loved languages. So I also threw in French into the mix and kind of had thought I would go into commerce at that point and then got to uni and was like, oh, I don't like commerce at uni. This sucks. And then went, all right, well, maybe it's law. And 
I loved the human rights elements of law, um, but it's a really strange thing, right, in the legal profession, and nothing's changed in this respect either. But you go to uni, you find that you have this love of things like human rights and civil rights and all the rest of it, but then when it comes to what you do once you graduate, people go into the corporate world typically because everyone says, well, you know, you need to do that because that's the way you're going to get the best leg up, right? And if you want to go do these other things, you can still go back and do those, right? But you should go and have this experience first. Doesn't work like that because once you get sucked into the corporate world, you're in the corporate world and you don't then leave the corporate world easily. Um, And so anyway, so I found myself in law firms and uh, going through private practice and I knew pretty much within a few weeks that private practice wasn't really for me, but um, life happened and, you know, sometimes life happens and you get stuck in these places, right? And so I decided to go to London and so it was like, well, it's easier to get a job in private practice than it is to move in-house, so we'll stay with a firm and move to another firm and then thought about leaving again and then the global financial crisis happened and then it was time to move back to Australia. So, you know, all these things kept happening, which meant I just stayed and stayed and stayed for far longer than I'd ever planned to. And don't get me wrong, I learned a lot, um, but it just wasn't my chosen long-term career, I guess. So anyway, I did that. And then I decided it was time to move to Melbourne and uh, move in-house. And so started interviewing um, and I actually... I saw the job ad for Philip Morris way sort of very early on in my search and looked at it and went, nah, because <laughs> I wasn't interested. I was like, you know, it's a tobacco company. I'm not never going to work at a tobacco company. I've never, ever, ever tried a cigarette in my life, never had any desire to, thought it was disgusting, um, had grown up with parents that were literally, would literally like, you know, screw up their faces anytime they were near people that were smoking. So I was like, we're not going to do that. So I threw it in the bin and then um, kept interviewing and I just wasn't having any luck, right? So I just wasn't getting anywhere with these interviews and I was exhausted. I was stressed. I was burnt out, I think, at the time as well. And I was flying so regularly from Sydney to Melbourne um, that work, my partners at work were starting to get really angry at me and you know starting to question why it was constantly going back to Melbourne and taking a day off here a day off there and then I started to have the first symptoms of my autoimmune issues show up all around the same time this is all in the space of six months right this was all happening and so I just wasn't in a good place and I was getting to the point where I was like, I need to have something happen right now. Like I need to leave Sydney. I need to get back to Melbourne. I need to be in another environment because this is just starting to really wear me down now. And I saw the ad again and I was like, oh, I'm still never ever going to go to work for a tobacco company. But you know what? Maybe I need some more interview practice because maybe <laughs> – I just haven't had enough interviews, right? And maybe there's something I'm not doing right. Maybe this will give me more practice. So I went along for the interview and I had walked in going, I am never taking this in a million years. And so I had the lowest of low expectations walking into this interview. And I left the interview and I was really confused because I was like, 
the people were really lovely, the work actually sounds very interesting. <sighs> people seem to stay there for a long time. What's that about? Can't all be about money. Um, there has to be something else going on. You know, it sounds like they're treated really well, both as employees but also as lawyers and respected, which is not always the case when you're an in-house lawyer, right, because you're often just seen as a blocker. It sounds like, okay, really confused, but no, still never, ever going to take this, even if they offered me the job. And this happened three times, and I went to the last one and came back, and I remember having lengthy conversations with my uh, family and my husband for days afterwards and I was like you know how can I do this how can I work for a tobacco company this just doesn't feel right but if I look at the flip of that I'm like well gets me to Melbourne gets me in-house gets me out of this horrible environment that I now and not just environment just this space actually it wasn't just the environment it was me right part of it was what was going on with me but this is a space that I'm in right now like I need to get out of this space and I need to change something right and they seem to look after their employees which is something I needed after having been burnt out um the work actually seems really interesting maybe I get to act as a bit of an ethical gatekeeper as a lawyer because I do have that you know, that sort of, not veto power, but I have that ability to review things from that lens, right? Um, and it's a choice, right, that people make. So there are all these things that I was sort of mulling over in my head. You know, there are other industries which we glamorize, but are equally as bad, like alcohol, for example. You know, is it any better, any worse, etc.? Mm. There's not much you can do. It's so heavily regulated, so it's heavily controlled, unlike, say, alcohol. So, you know, you work within specific boundaries. So it's like I wasn't sure. It was it was a pretty hard, hard conversation um, in my own head. But in the end I decided, you know what, I think it's the right decision for now. I think I need to make this decision now get there, see what it's like. If it turns out it's not for me, I could always move on and do something else, right? So that was my career. And then here I am now, I've left on a break, about to start something new. Yeah, look, I, I hear everything which you're just saying there. And this might be, before we continue with your journey, it might be an interesting point to discuss a bit. Because, I mean, I guess a lot of people who are listening to this will be thinking, sure, but you're still working at a backer company you've been really successful at the tobacco company. On top of being really successful there, like obviously you only rise up in the company when you're doing exceptional work for them. And I doubt that the tobacco company was really keen on you enforcing ethics, I guess. So the argument would be that then in some ways you've supported the industry to continue to progress. And I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here mm, because I've, mm. I, you, you, you know me well enough that I believe mostly in personal responsibility rather than corporate responsibility, but they obviously both play their part. And I'm, I'm curious how you've managed to balance the ethics because it's not what you're passionate about. You're mm. more passionate about mental health and equality mm. and uh, yeah. Yeah, a, yeah, a business that's, yeah. No, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good question and I think um, one of the things that really helped me reconcile that self, reconcile that for myself was the fact that actually as an organisation 
they were investing a lot in R&D and in innovation to try and move away from cigarettes. Now, you can be cynical, I guess, about the fact that a tobacco company is doing that and say, well, you know, what does that really mean? And isn't this, isn't there just some other angle here and it's another product, et cetera. But I think for me, I think the fact that they were moving into this different area and trying to move people off cigarettes and into something that was or is um, scientifically shown to be um, less harmful to people, far less harmful, like up to 95% less harmful to people than smoking that is a positive, right? And that was what they were trying to do. Is and, and and I think the thing is, you know, people are cynical about this and they say, well, you know, shouldn't you then just, you know, stop selling the product that's really harmful? Like why wouldn't you just, if you really cared about this, you just stop selling cigarettes, right? And it's easy to say that, but all that happens is you create a black market, right? So if you actually want to get rid of the product to begin with, you can't go down the road of, prohibition you can't go down the road of not just not selling you actually have to have an alternate thing for them to transition to or move to so that once they've transitioned enough people then you can say okay we'll get rid of that right and so for me I think this story and the fact that there were these you know these other things happening behind the scenes that was what allowed me to get comfortable in working for this company because a lot of my work was in that area of trying to facilitate change and see how we could try and move um, Australia down that track. And so even for the last couple of years, that's, you know, a lot of what I worked on was more to do with um, therapeutic goods type regulation rather than tobacco itself because it was about trying to work out how you can get these products out there and start moving people away from smoking yeah okay yeah yeah cool and that that sounds that sounds well reasoned i'm sure there are people who are listening would still be like no you still work for a tobacco company but i guess everyone's entitled to their opinion right yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think this is this is the thing, right? Like, you know, and I, I know there's a lot of stigma attached to it and I've, I've, I've dealt with that over the years, right? Like, you know, it's it's not necessarily being comfortable, um, you know, voicing where you work at every, in every type of situation, right? And I've had these conversations with people over the years around, you know, how could you work there and... Um, you know, how does that how does that mean that you're aligned and how can you say that you care about XYZ if you're also working at this company? But I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? Mm. Um, I've, and, you know, when it comes to the point around ethics and, you know, whether or not the company cared about ethics, I actually think they did and they have lots of policies and stuff that go far beyond regulation, you know, so it's not just what's out there in black and white in, legislation um, but it's actually the policies they have themselves and how they use those policies to um, frame what they do as a business so you know and people will be cynical about that 100% and I can't do anything about the fact that people are cynical you know Mm. like it's not for me to change someone else's mind about what they think about me having worked for a tobacco company you know that was part of my story. It's part of my journey. It's a decision I made at a point in time for a number of reasons, right? And do you know what? They 
treated me well. I did a lot of interesting work. I learned a lot about myself. All the stuff I'm now really interested in and the stuff that I really um, am passionate about started off in this organization with me starting to work on inclusion and diversity efforts, with me starting to work on mental health programs, with me starting to work on, you know, flexibility-related topics. And so they all had their birth within this organization. Sure, I might have cared about these things before, but, you know, I became a mum whilst I was working at this company. So my experiences around flexibility are framed by reference to my experiences at Philip Morris, right? At the end of the day, you know, whatever product a company sells, they're also a group of employees and people, you know, with people-related issues. And what I what I do for a living is only one part of who I am, right? You know, it's, yes, I was a lawyer. Yes, I worked at Philip Morris, but that doesn't define who I am as a person, you know, and yes. so all the other things that I care about, all the other things that I believe in make make me who I am, right? And so that's, I think, what people need to see is, you know, the whole person, not just the title and the place that you worked. So I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying, and I, I really respect it as well. Um, there's always room for disagreement, uh, but it sounds like you've made, your point is that you made the decision for what you needed with a whole bunch of various factors which you really need to consider for yourself, for your family, uh, for your own ethics, as well as for what the company is doing. And you made the decision for yourself that felt right at the time. Yeah. And it, it sounds like what you're sharing as well is that the main reason that the tobacco companies are doing a lot of change is because of all the regulation that's being imposed upon them, which isn't necessarily the case with a lot of other industries as well such as alcohol and then you touched on something which i think is a really important part of your journey which is you became a mum, the two kids mm. and faced some challenges with that so do you want to share that part of your journey as well yeah sure so i had my daughter back in 2014 and so it's quite early on actually in my time at phil morris i'd only been there about a year and a half no yeah about a year and a half when i had her and um and that was a really easy pregnancy, um, but then I struggled after. So um, when I had her, she had lots of health issues. She didn't put on, she lost 10% of her, more than 10% of her birth weight at hospital. And wow. then um, she didn't put it, she didn't go back to her birth weight until she was about eight weeks old, which is quite a long time. And so we were at hospitals, we were at the maternal health nurse a lot. We were, you know, at the pediatrician. And she wouldn't feed and she would scream at me in the middle of the night. And I was kind of beside myself. Like I remember sitting there one night and just not even not even doing anything. Like she was just screaming and I just sat there for an hour with her just screaming in my lap. And, you know, eventually I convinced the pediatrician to try some medication for reflux and it turned out she had reflux and that made a big difference. And, and things started turning around after that. But I look back on that time now and I'm like, I actually think I had a bit of postnatal at the time because um, there was a lot going on. My health was also not good at the time. I had some other autoimmune issues flare up at the same time. So there was all sorts of stuff going on. Um, so I wasn't in a good way then. And it took me a while as a result to want to try again for a second child, even though that was something 
I really wanted to do and I really wanted to have a second child because I've had a or I have a very close relationship with my sister and I wanted that for my daughter, right? So um, eventually we tried again and um, that's when we had our first miscarriage. And I think when you've had one child, you kind of think that, you know, it's just going to be easy the second time around because you've done it before. And so we weren't expecting anything different and we'd even told our three-year-old, which I wish we had never done. Um, so we'd even told her. So she'd started, you know, kissing my belly and talking to the baby and then um, went for my eight week and I could see the OB's face change and I knew in that moment that something wasn't right. So we had our first miscarriage and it was it was a very um, it was a really unsettling experience and I think it was the first time I really experienced grief at that level because you know it's funny I think you know miscarriage when you're when someone tells you you're miscarrying or miscarried um, it's quite clinical in the way they describe it and they talk to you about the fact that you it was never viable or it was never going to be a baby or it wasn't a baby, right? And none of that actually really helps at the time because, you know, I was like I've had all these dreams and this future imagined in my head about, you know, my daughter playing with this, you know, child um, and building a relationship with this baby and us having this different family unit. And so you're grieving not just the loss of the the baby but the loss of what was to have been I guess Mm -hmm. and so it really hit me but you know I I felt quite um alone in my grief like it's I think it's but look obviously my husband was dealing with dealing with it as well but he was dealing with it in his own way and had his own grief to carry and I had my own grief which you know, for me also manifested in still feeling like I was pregnant because I'd had a missed miscarriage as well. I hadn't had the traditional, you know, what I expected to be a miscarriage, you know, like you see in the movies. So it kind of was still there and I had to wait for it to pass and all the rest of it. So it, it was, we just couldn't hold each other's grief during that time. And so I felt quite alone. Um, and I realized, I think, in in those few months, just how little we speak about it. And it was then when I was sharing with friends what I'd been through that some of them would say, I had the same thing happen to me. And I'd be like, how did I not know this? You know, I mean, why have we never spoken about this before? And people don't speak about it until it happens to someone else. And then they share it in response to that. I was like, there's something wrong about this. But anyway, look, you know, I carried on with life, went to work, you know, pretended I'd had a cold um, and just went about, you know, day-to-day life, even though it was not quite really there. And then we tried again the following year and um, this time I was really anxious about what was going on. So we had an earlier scan, everything was fine. Went back again a week and a half later and again I had miscarried and so this time we had the surgery. And I had just literally been promoted at work. So I um, was really busy. I was traveling, I was trying to build my team. I was trying to, you know, 
get to know a whole new different peer group of people because I was now up one level. Um, so there's all this stuff going on. And so I, I literally would go to work, hold it all in during the working day and then come back at night and just ball at night um, just to release it all. And it was really challenging. And I think it wasn't until a couple of months later, I was talking to someone actually who worked on mental health stuff for our organisation and in the middle of our conversation, she says, to, to, she turned to me and she said, Niti, are you okay? And I was like, there was something in that moment because I went to respond on autopilot and to say, yes, I'm fine. Um, but something stopped me from responding at that time. And I sort of, um, I paused and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm really not okay. And um, it was the first time I really kind of shared what was going on for me emotionally to at, at all, like in my entire life, right? Like it just wasn't something I ever did. Like we weren't, uh, we weren't taught growing up to express emotion in that way. It was quite super, a superficial expression of emotion, if that makes sense. And so um, that was a life-changing conversation for me because I realised after that conversation how much having the conversation and voicing what I was going through had helped me move further along the healing process, right? Mm. And it was at that time that I realized I need to speak about this eventually. At some point in time when I am, when I can speak about this without bursting into tears, I need to voice my story because it's important we start speaking about this more. And there were numerous times over the years that came after that where I went, I think I'm ready. Like there was a mental health thing at work and I was introducing it. I was like, maybe I'll use my story to introduce it. And I prepared it all. And then I got there that morning and I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't share it. And so I didn't. Um, and so it wasn't until, I guess, 2020 when I was writing on LinkedIn and some way into that journey actually, that I decided I was going to write about it instead of talking about it. And so I did that. Um, but look, my story, unlike the story of a lot of others, ended up with me actually having a rainbow baby. And so I did the year after that fall pregnant again. And this time I did, you know, we did successfully manage to have a child, but it was the most anxiety ridden like nine months of my life, like every time I couldn't feel the baby move, I was like, there you go, it's happening. Mm. going to lose it now. And I had complications at the very end, which meant I could have lost the baby. Um, so I was like, wow, ah, got to the end and now it's going to happen, you know. And so I, I really didn't believe that I was going to have this second child until I actually had the child. <laughs> um yeah, so it's it's been a, a life-changing thing for me, I think, and um, really changed my perspective on a lot of things, including uh, the power of being vulnerable. Um, and I don't mean just vulnerable out there in public to people. I mean just, you know, your own vulnerability to express what's going on for you, even within the you know privacy of say a therapy room or whatever it is because I think it's it's really important that we don't hold these things within us because they can do so much more damage when we do that so then what are your thoughts about 
holding on to the news of having a child or being pregnant for 12 weeks? Because that's something I assume it's common in a lot of areas in the world, but definitely most Western societies, you just hide Mm. it. You don't tell anyone for the first 12 weeks because what if you lose the baby and then you don't have to tell anyone? Yeah, it's a catch-22, isn't it, right? Like we we don't tell anyone because of the risk of losing the child and having to then untell people. And I have to say the first time around when I had the miscarriage, I had told my family, I had told my daughter. Untelling my daughter was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life because she didn't understand it because she was three and she kept kissing my belly um, even afterwards and then wanting explanations around, but where's the baby gone and what's that? Because, you know, explaining death to a three-year-old is not simple um so it is it is really hard to untell people but the problem with the 12-week silence thing is that because we don't share it then no one knows what you've gone through and no one knows that you have suffered this loss unless you then proactively go out of your way to tell people I was pregnant and now I'm not pregnant and this has happened, right, which is also equally painful and hard to do. So the silence begets more silence, right, and the silence means you then end up suffering in silence when something does go wrong. So I actually think, you know, we need to get to a point where we are more comfortable talking about the fact that you're pregnant because also it's not even just the the loss right it's okay you know I mean I was lucky not to have morning sickness but a lot of women have morning sickness really badly right Mm. and so if you're going to work and you're suffering from severe morning sickness or other complications in that first trimester and you're not telling people that's hard right Mm. as well so it leads to other you know complicating issues too so I don't know like I I find the 12-week silence thing a bit problematic I think we need to get better at talking about it so is it just that we need to get is it just that we need to get better at talking about it or do we need to get the right people around us where we feel comfortable talking about things yes yes and that's important too right like I mean and that goes to psychological safety right because Mm. you're then sharing something that potentially has the possibility of becoming quite a vulnerable situation for you and so and and it actually even if nothing happens it's still a vulnerable situation because you're telling your workplace that you're pregnant and you know there's a lot of other issues that you know affect women that are pregnant at workplaces including bias um, promotion bias and all sorts of other things so you know you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position so And this goes for anything, not just the conversation around having a child, but it's important within these environments to have psychological safety. And I think this is something many workplaces are still struggling to understand and to really, you know, put their fingers on like, you know, how do you you actually create psychological safety for people to be able to share these things comfortably? And Again, it's a catch-22 because you only create those situations if the leaders in that organisation are willing to share themselves, right? It's almost as if by sharing yourself what you're going through, you give other people permission to share as well. So as an example, through the pandemic, I um, was very open about how hard things were 
and how chaotic my life was and how much I was struggling, you know, along the way. And because it, yeah, it was hard, you know, I was burnt out. I was, um, struggling with the emotions of it all, struggling with anxiety in a way that I'd never done before. And I was quite open about all of that with anyone who would listen at work. And, you know, and it was, well, part of this is also about allowing other people to feel that they can voice their own concerns and where they are at as well. And I think leaders of organisations need to do more of that in order to facilitate these sort of safe environments where people feel that they can voice what's going on for them and they can show up and say, do you know what, I'm struggling at the moment and this is why, without a fear of repercussion or being judged or, you know, any of those sort of horrible consequences. And that sounds like a really really challenging topic to deal with because even if like even if work, your leader says you know what i can see that you're really struggling with these things that's okay take some time spend some time with your family do what you need to do mm. seek psychological help we'll even pay for the first six sessions whatever like all that kind of stuff and the leaders mm. do that and yes you should be open but then when it comes to promoting them to a higher stress role. There's got to be something in the back of their mind thinking, oh, they've struggled with this and like they've struggled with stress in the past. They're at a good place now. Mm. Is that, I don't know. There are these other people who have just been like, they've never had any challenges and they've never struggled. I want yeah. still like. Yeah, like look, to- yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I think that would be going through a lot of people's minds, you know, how are they going to cope with this, you know, more stressful role but I think that's where we've we've got to start trusting people and we've got to start going okay well let's have the conversation with the person you know if they were to step into this role is it a role that they feel that they could they could do do they think they could manage in the role and you know and allowing the allowing them to have that conversation with you right Mm. um also the other thing too is I think through adversity and through dealing with adversity, people build up a lot of resilience. So, you know, dealing with the stuff that I've dealt with has made me far stronger than, um, you know, many other things in my life, right? Because I've, I've gone through that. So it's like, well, if I can go through that and come out on the other side, then I can deal with other things. They're not as hard right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is where the conversation around talking up about being emotional, about, you know, being vulnerable needs to change because it takes courage and strength to step into a place where you can be vulnerable and where you can share your emotional state with other people. And that courage doesn't disappear. Like it is, or it isn't just confined to sharing your vulnerability or sharing your emotions it's it's a it's a strength that you carry forward right mm-hmm. so i think you know i think there's something to be um uh, mindful of there right you know yes. where leaders are concerned that perhaps i'm assuming they're not strong or they can't handle mm-hmm. these things perhaps that's not the reality and perhaps these other people that i think have gone through nothing and that are really strong 
Perhaps they are secretly going through things. They just haven't told people. Because at the end of the day, mental health concerns, you know, they affect all of us, you know, yes. from time to time. You know, we will have up times and down times. And, you know, some people will have it far worse. And some people will have diagnosable, you know, mental illnesses, which is, you know, a different, a different category um, of issue. But, you know... You, we all have issues in our life and we deal with them differently depending on how we're conditioned to deal with them. And so I think the idea that this person who seems really strong and stoic and just keeps going and, you know, that they've never dealt with something or that they're not dealing with something is a fallacy because who knows what's happening in their iceberg. Yeah. Um, miscarriages and pregnancies and getting promoted at work and everyone's still thinking you're strong anything you know i mean depression um you know um issues going on at home perhaps they're mm. going through a marriage breakdown or relationship breakdown um perhaps they've you know they're having identity issues you mm. know it's there's all sorts of things going on for people that people do not bring to work with them no right they, I'm they, sure if we created not, that list, it would be thousands and thousands they, of potential things. There would be so, so many, right? And, and I think that's where we can't assume that the person that looks strong is stronger for, than the person who voices their pain. And then I guess there's this element of how you voice your pain because some people will express their emotions in a very codependent way. Mm -hmm. Like you need to, I've got all these emotions and now you got to listen to me and they'll just get very emotional in front of everyone. And that's their way of kind of just dealing with it. And which can come across as quite unprofessional and can distract people from what they're trying to do. And there's another way of courageously expressing your emotions. Say, I'm going through this right now. I'd really, I need some help. And maybe that's not direct help from you with talking about my emotions, but at least understanding that I need to take some time for what I'm mm -hmm. focusing on. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's an interesting one, right? Because I, I don't want to say that there is a right way and a wrong way to share your emotions with people because I don't yes. think we're taught as people to really generally taught to express our emotions at all. Like I, I just don't think we're taught that, you know. I think it's it's changing and I think as the world changes and as we talk more about mental health and about emotional intelligence and about um, EQ and all the rest of it, things are changing and we're starting to have these conversations more and more about, you know, how do you express emotion and how do you um, display vulnerability, right, in different settings and in different situations. But we've not been taught that. I wasn't taught that growing mm. up. I'm not sure if you were taught it growing up. But, yeah, you know, it it's, um, it's not easy. So for the person that feels that the only way they can share is by being codependent as you said in these situations is that because they just don't know how else to share their emotions right and I think sometimes you know yes that can be frustrating but equally I think we need to potentially in those situations lean into that person yes and sort of say well what can I do for you you know, whether that's taking them to a side and saying, okay, let's have a one-to-one -one and let's sit down and chat, right, so that it's in a different setting. And perhaps that's all that person needs is for someone to 
create that space for them because otherwise they're trying to just find space and they're not sure how to find the space to do that, right? Mm. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I don't. I, I just I would be wary about rushing in to judge the person that you know. Mm. It seems as if they're just trauma dumping. I, I would imagine that the focus needs to be on how we're able to support them, and to make sure that people are able to build up that emotional resilience. And mm. just like with finances, I have a lot of money conversation. I'm a financial advisor, financial coach, life coach. I have a lot of money conversations with clients as well, yeah. and obviously. Obviously, people are, like people are rarely taught how to manage money properly when they're young, and then they make huge stuff ups when they're older. And they yeah. just often, so many times I've I've heard someone say, "No, no, no!" I, like I was always terrible with money, and then my manager, event who knew how much I was earning, eventually said, "Why are you struggling with money? Like, why mm. are you? Why do you keep wanting more money?" And then eventually sat me down and then went through step by step. Oh, right. It was never so obvious to me until that stage that I mustn't (laughs) spend more than I earn. Got it. Now I know what I can do. And so same same type of thing I'd imagine. And I'd imagine that that means that uh, companies have a more important role. But more Mm. specifically, just like you said, companies are just the leaders and everyone underneath the leaders and who are following the, the whole group of employees that actually make the company. So the leaders need to take more of an active role in making sure that people have the skills and the resources that they need Mm, to be mm. able to do it in a professional way that doesn't damage them and doesn't hurt the company as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agree, agree, absolutely. You mentioned that you mentioned that your daughter, like you were never taught when you were young. So you didn't mention your daughter, but you were never taught when you were young that uh, like how to handle your emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got my strategies with my two and a half year old. I'm curious what how you've really been focusing on making sure that your your daughters or your kids yeah. are able to do that. Yeah, look, I think um, so. My daughter's eight now, and so we have a lot of um, in depth conversations about a lot of stuff, including emotions and feelings. And recently, I think for her last birthday, she got a couple of books that were all about emotions and feelings. And so, you know, we've been working through them and going through them and going, okay. And I don't necessarily agree with everything that's in these books either, right? Because some of them, sometimes I'm like, yeah, that sort of feels like suppressing emotions. <laughs> I'm not sure that's right. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk through the stuff that's in these books and go, okay, well, how do we, how do we process emotions, you know, and how do we, um, for example, process anger? And that's, that's something I think with kids in particular, you really need to help them to understand and to manage because it, you know, for them, anger can often mean stomping and like, you know, screaming and so on and so forth. So it's like, well, okay, it's fine. You're feeling what you're feeling. I understand that you're feeling angry. I understand that you're feeling upset. I understand that you're feeling scared. How do we work through this? Talk me through what you're feeling. Talk me through what's happening for you right now, right? And so I think it's just building up those skill sets to go, let's have a conversation. You know, you're upset. Let's talk about it. And equally, it's me having that conversation when I'm feeling upset and going, I'm having a bad day and I am sorry I've snapped at you. Okay. And and this is why it's it's not to do with you. Mummy is going through X, Y, Z 
and I'm very sorry and I shouldn't have done that, but, you know, this is what's been happening for me. So it's it's having these conversations to say it's okay to feel what you're feeling, right, and we need to be able to talk about that. So, you know, if you're sad, let's talk about it. So mm-hmm. for me I think it's all about conversation and it's the same with anything, right? Like so we do a lot of work, for example, on confidence building um, because I think in the earlier years I wasn't sure particularly in prep, how she was doing at school and whether she had friends, whether she was happy at school, you know, or she'd get really upset when she didn't do well at like a sports thing, you know, for example. So I was like, okay, well, how do we build up confidence? And so it's the same thing, you know, you you just you talk about it. And actually she's amazed me sometimes. I'm like, oh, I thought that would be something you didn't feel you were confident at. And not that I said that to her, I wouldn't say that to her, but in my head that's what I was thinking and she'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. Um, that's fine. I can do that. And so it's actually, you know, it's those conversations are important because it also teaches me where she's at. Hmm. Yeah. You're, as I heard that, it reminded me of something from a few months ago. I was, uh, I was with my daughter while she was having a bath and she was, I don't know, two and a bit at the time, uh, two years, three months or something. And she can understand pretty much everything which we say. Mm. And... I just felt a little bit of distance between the two of us. Mm. Like just a little bit of like she just kind of goes to know straight away and just quick to kind of like turn away and just all that kind of stuff where you want your kids to turn towards you and to be more communicative or say yes or at least consider what you're saying or have a smile. And she didn't have that. And in that moment, I decided, okay, it's time for me to take personal responsibility. Maybe, Maybe there's something in me that's kind of causing a little bit of this friction. I did something which I, I saw once in a personal development course, which I which I thought was really, really silly. It was from something from Kyle Cease. Okay. And he he shared like he has this process where he gets people who are in the audience or in the group to turn to each other and for just like five or ten minutes or something, just say everything which you're feeling. Everything mm. which you're feeling to the person. Not not necessarily about the person, never direct it at the person. And whenever it's something negative that comes up turn around and really find a way to say, and I love that. And then keep Mm. going with what else, what else, what else. And I did this for, I don't know, probably about five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. I I wasn't keeping track of time. And I'll just be expressing that. I feel really, I feel really upset right now because normally we have such a beautiful connection and you want to say yes and play. And when I suggest something, you really want to do it and try it. And that makes me feel like you trust me when you do it. And now that's not happening. And it makes me feel a little bit uneasy. And I love that because that's inspiring me to share all of this with you. And sharing it with you makes me feel really grateful that I've gone on this journey to be able to feel comfortable with sharing it with you and also makes me feel very proud and I'm able to be vulnerable. And then at one point, she almost fell down, like she almost slipped back. Uh, I said, and when I just saw you slip back, that made me feel kind of a little bit anxious and just for a split second until I saw you come back up and I was ready to catch you. And I'm so, once again, so grateful that you're able to bring yourself back up and that you're growing and blah, blah, blah. And I did that for about five, 10 minutes. It felt ridiculous. (laughs) And, but afterwards, she, she was like the connection between myself and her completely changed. Yeah. Entirely. Like that, the rest of that connection changed to... Like, yes, I don't think she said no one more time mm. that night. And that was mm. like another two hours. Yeah. And everything was like, yeah, let's do that. Or, uh, Daddy, let's read a book. 
yeah, okay, sure. yeah, let's yeah. read a book and like just let's do something let's have fun let's play puzzle or whatever like sit on my lap and gave me beautiful cuddles and i'm like maybe it was just me maybe all of that tension was just me and all i needed to do was let it out and be vulnerable with her courageously because yes. that was tough to do because you want to show the strong face and a strong facade for your kids as well right not just at mm. work and with everybody else and you sharing that uh, reminded me of that story so thank you yeah no, uh, that's beautiful and i think you're right like kids are sponges right they they absorb the emotion around them so w- whatever you're feeling or perhaps don't even realize that you're feeling but sort of you know um projecting i guess mm-hmm. is likely to be what they take and they absorb that and they go okay you know and i found this during the pandemic you know it's the times when things were stressful and when you know i and my husband were like you know just stressed about work and about life and about you know everyone being at home the kids would absorb that and they would become stressy themselves Mm. but if we sort of went okay whatever let you know let's step back from this and okay let's spend a few minutes just having some fun and just being silly or you know like we often would stick music on um you know like dancey music right just to change the energy in the room and the difference that that made all of a sudden to suddenly go from stress to upbeat and let's be silly and let's just laugh and let's be present which is a big part of it um it just made such a big difference you know and all of a sudden everyone's emotions were on a different level and we're all happy so you know, I think, yeah, it, it is something I think we need to be mindful of as parents is just, you know, what are we bringing to the table as well? Mm. And I guess in this frame and from everything which was spoken about of being open and vulnerable and courageous, do you really regret telling your then three-year-old that you were pregnant? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've actually ever considered that before. Um, do I regret it? I, I I like to think that I don't live my life with many regrets, right? Because the experiences that make me, they're experiences that make me who I am, right? And so that experience of having to tell her what had happened and, you know, and, and the fact that there wasn't a baby anymore, yeah, it changed me as well, having to do that and probably for the better because it's probably one of the hardest things I've had to do, right? But so, yeah, so maybe no, I don't regret it. I didn't tell her the second time when we fell pregnant. We didn't tell her. And even when we had um, her now brother, I didn't. we didn't tell her until we were a bit further along. Um you know, and it's it's interesting. Should I have? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Mm. I don't know. Um, I don't regret having told her, though. I mean, look, you know, it's a life experience and she won't remember it going forward. She was too young to remember that um, into the future. But, you know, it, it, it was a big test for me at the time to sort of go through that and and manage those conversations. And I think, you know, it's... 
probably the first really difficult conversation I've had to have with her. And I've had to have many since then. And I'm sure I will have to have many, many, many more <laughs> in the many years I'm to come. Sure. Um, so, you know, it probably paved the way for having those difficult conversations and having the strength to have them potentially. I agree with that. Um, yeah, because uh, I, I feel like any any time that it feels really challenging to be vulnerable or have a conversation, every time mm-hmm. I've gone through and actually had the conversation, it's always been better in the end, always been a better result yeah. as a result of having it than if I hadn't every yeah. time. And maybe that's just confirmation bias or justification bias or whatever bias it is. Uh, but it just it just feels like it's always better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. No, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's it's definitely good once you've had those conversations and you come out on the other side. Yeah, you, you feel good. And I and I think the more vulnerable you are, the easier it is to be vulnerable again. If that makes yes. sense. Yeah, it is. You you build up a muscle, right? Yeah. I mean. On a similar topic then, I know that uh, we've spoken about it in the past, but you also posted a lot about it as well. I'm really curious your thoughts about your and your experiences with culture, skin color, discrimination, the whole mm. fitting in. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I have spoken about it a lot. And look, there are a couple of things for me. So one, um, in terms of skin color itself, I think it was for me, a massive issue during childhood. Uh, number one, Indian society has a huge problem with uh, colorism. And, you know, so that was something I grew up with was this idea of, you know, the fairer you are, the more beautiful you are, the darker you are, the less beautiful you are, right? And and also, you know, I guess as a backdrop to this, um, we have to consider the whole, you know, um, I guess the aim of parents, right, like, you know, particularly parents of Indian girls is like, you know, get an education maybe, that might be one of their aims, you know, have a good career maybe, that might be one of their aims. But generally they all want to get you married, right, you know, and this is like a life goal that your parents have. And so, you know, from early on, I, you know, my parents, and my parents are fairly liberal and they're fairly progressive in that in that perspective, but, you know, even they were like, right, so you'll need to get married and so on and so forth. And there's this whole attitude of, you know, it'll be harder if you're darker. And so this was something I definitely found hard as I grew up. You know, it was, it affected my self-esteem massively. You know, there were these fairness creams that were really popular in India at the time called Fair and Lovely mum would go to India or we'd all go to India, she'd buy these, would then apply them, make you look like a ghost. Didn't really do much beyond that. Um, and it was it was awful and I I, um, I hated it. And it really, um, I think, had quite long-lasting uh, impact for me even as I went into my 20s and, you know, started getting involved in relationships and things it 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 definitely had made a serious dent in my self-esteem and obviously over the years you know I've moved beyond that and you know it's it is what it is and I you know go out into the sun I don't wear fairness creams I don't really you know subscribe to this belief anymore but it is still a massive problem it's still huge industry 
you know, so there was a big outroar, uh, uproar, I think, about these creams and this beauty industry in India, um, maybe in the 2000s, I think mm-hmm. in the 2000s. And, um, and they changed the names of some of the creams, they changed some of the formulations, but they didn't remove the creams, right? So they're still big business, they're still big industry, and you still will hear people when a child is born commenting on the fairness of the child and they'll be like, mm. you know, and it'll be in the tone. It's not so much in what they say, but how they say it. So it'll be like, oh, they're really fair or, oh, they're a bit dark. You know, so it's kind mm. of the the intonation that's used that, you know, expresses that sort of colorism um, bias. So that's colorism. Now, as, as far as um, skin color itself is concerned and, you know, racism and things like that it for me it's not been a lived experience of mine like I haven't felt I I, there's no incident in my life that I can point to and go that happened because I am a woman of color right like Mm. I, I, I can't do that maybe there might be I don't know like I don't know if people have done things through my career that have been because of that bias or something or other but there's nothing outwardly I could say that happened because of this but I have seen it with other people. I've seen my parents experience racism. I've heard of friends experience it. And so for me, it really, um, I guess a couple of years ago, years ago came down to how can I use what is my privilege of not having been impacted by these things to make a difference for people that have been impacted by it. And so it's really leaning into a space of going, I, I can do something here, you know. And it's, um, it's been really interesting in the last um, year I have become really good friends with some people who do a lot of work in this space. And we went out for dinner late last year and they were talking about how tiring it is to work in this space. And I had this moment of realisation there of going, do you know, yes, it's tiring when you're working on an ism or a phobia and it's something that you face in your personal life, it's exhausting, right? Because mm-hmm. it brings up your own personal scars and personal journey and trauma. But when it's not something you've personally faced, it's a whole lot less tiring, right? And so I was like, this is where I can make a difference because, you know, I can help these women who operate in this space from a place of less fatigue, you know, mm. and, and that's powerful, you know? So, yeah, so that's, I, I guess that's been my experience of sort of the skin color related thing and fitting in is a, is a challenging one as well. You know, I'm, I was quite a shy child and so I've struggled um, with fitting in Um growing up and I think not not only that I was shy but I also really just didn't find people that I kind of was like you know like we gel right and I feel like I belong in this circle and so I always felt a little bit on the outer of social um, circles growing up and it took me probably until I was in university to really find people that I was like you know actually, I think we're on the same page and I think we believe in the same things and I feel like I belong in this environment. And 
you know, it, it can be hard, I think, when you go through life not, well, that many years of your life and feeling like you don't belong. You know, and I obviously made friends along the way and, you know, but looking back I'm like, was I really truly friends with these people because we had stuff in common or we, you know, shared something or was it because of convenience? And I think in my early life I think some of it was about convenience and some of it was about just getting through. Yes. So, Yeah. Do you feel like that's like that upbringing and that experience impacted your career in any way? Um, look, I think, you know, as I progressed in my career, look, I think being, um, I guess being shy and being a little bit reserved didn't go away. You know, I had learnt to mask it or to not mask it. That's probably the wrong word. I learnt to project a different exterior than my interior right so I had learnt to be a bit louder I had learnt to um, project something a little bit different um, in the workplace but you know yes there were still environments in which I felt very uncomfortable and very much like I didn't belong so anytime I was in a networking type environment in my private practice um, career I felt extremely uncomfortable and it it all felt a little bit fake to me and I'd always struggled a little bit with inauthenticity and this felt to me to be like the pinnacle of inauthenticity being in a networking event and so I really struggled in those environments and I think that was definitely part of the reason why private practice just never did it for me because I knew eventually I'd get to a point where I'd have to sell um, two people to clients and it just felt a bit ick. Now, over time, I've learned that we're always selling and we're just selling in different ways and, you know, you don't have to be in a networking environment and feel that it's ick or be other than who you are, but it's taken me a long time to get to that realisation. Okay. And so what have been some of the other challenges, but kind of like on the way to the top, like you didn't get quite to the top, you got pretty high up, uh, especially in terms of in-house legal. Hmm. And so what have been some of the broader and larger challenges that you faced? Yeah, look, I think there've been quite a few. Like I think one of the things I think I didn't quite realize as a naive, some, you know, 20 something year old was that, um, your career isn't just based on your hard work. You know, you, you don't, yes, hard work is important, but it's there's much more than that that goes into having a successful career. And, you know, I think for me having kids and coming back from having children was quite challenging because I think I just assumed that things would be as they were before when I returned to work and they really weren't. I mean, I'd lost my network of people that supported me because they'd all moved on to different places, different positions, etc. I suddenly was working um, on an inflexible arrangement and so with that came perceptions around commitment and, you know, um, treated, I was treated a little bit differently. I could no longer go for drinks with people as and when I wanted to, had to be somewhere to pick up kids and look after mm-hmm. kids. So, you know, it just, it just became 
challenging. And I realized in that time that actually there's a lot more than hard work that goes into making it in these mm-hmm. environments, right? And, you know, along the way I've had great managers, I've had terrible managers, you know, I've had people that I never, ever want to come across ever again in my entire life, you know. Um, like I remember moving to London and I was um, like I was put into this um in this um, area within this law firm that I had no experience in. And so I was a bit lost and I was like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so someone needs to guide me through this. He's a bit more senior. So I was relying on someone a bit more senior than me to tell me how much work I should take on or not take on or etc. Anyway, got to my six month probation period and I probably hadn't billed as much as some other people might have because I'd been relying on this person to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. And this partner was awful. Like he literally walked in, the, walked in, he didn't sit down. So I was sitting down, he was standing up and he started um, practicing his golf swing. So he wasn't even looking at me, like literally just wow. practicing his golf swing. And he was like, so, you know, you know, been thinking with your probation chat, you know, like you haven't built as much as other people. And there's this real perception that you're lazy. And I was like, what? You know, as such an emotive word to use the word lazy, right? And I was like, yes. what? And then he's like, yeah, and you've also taken a lot of sick leave. And he said these two things in conjunction with one another. And I was like, mm. I was like, um, are, you, are, are you telling me you don't believe that I've been sick? You know, I've just moved to another country. You know, my immune system is obviously catching up to that, you know, and trying mm. to deal with the change in climate and everything else, right? He was like, well, you know, I don't know. So we're going to have to extend your probation. And all the time he didn't look at me. He didn't sit down. So he was towering above me, practicing his golf swing. You know, I was just like, this is just outrageous. But, you know, this is the sort of thing you don't, like I thought I had been doing the right thing in trying to ensure I could do what I needed to do and, you know, not take on so much that I wasn't going to be able to deliver anything to anyone, right? But in the end, you know, it turned out actually that was not what they wanted because they obviously wanted me billing more so that they could earn more money and, you know, you know, whatever, I would just have to deal with it. You know, if I couldn't, didn't have enough time in the day, then that was what it was. So, you know, so that was pretty traumatic and made me realise pretty quickly that, you know, okay, this isn't going to be plain sailing and I can't just get by on hard work and intelligence. And, you know, sometimes, you know, as icky as it is, there's a game that's being played around you and you either play the game or, you know, you get off and go play another game somewhere else, you know. And so it, it was... It was hard and I really struggled in that time. First few years of being in London, I really struggled. Like I had a lot of conversations during that time which rattled me, you know, conversations around, oh, well, you're Australian, you're here, we expect you to work harder than anyone else because you're going to go home eventually so we need to get your pound of flesh and others that were like, you know, we own your time so we don't care what you have going on on a weekend. If we want you here, you're going to be here. I was like, Okay. Mm. That's hard. So, you know, so I dealt with burnout, extreme stress, you know, the 
um, cutthroat environment that is law firms and, you know, the, the badge of honour that people wear when they work all night, you know, all of, all of that. It was eye-opening and not always in a great way, quite often not in a good way. I mean, it, it definitely made me realise this wasn't for me and that I needed to move on from it. But, yeah, challenging. I, I remember I had a friend that I haven't spoken to in quite a while, uh, not as close for various reasons. Uh, but I remember once he shared that he had done, I don't know, he did a, I think it was like 70 billable hours in a week or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he did 14 or 16 billable hours in one day. And he was really proud of it. He wasn't saying, oh my God, this is so much. I don't know if I can handle it. He was like, look how amazing I am. I'm like, is that how everyone in the old place of work actually speaks? Yeah. Uh, is that is that the way it actually is in legal firms? He's like, um, yeah, but no one else has billed as much as me. I'm like, okay, good for you. Um, that was a bit of yeah. a shock to me. It's, it's, it is, it is, and it is a bit of a competition. And, you know, remember there were um, firms that used to publish every week how many billable hours people had done, right? And so it's purposefully pitting people against other people and shaming those that haven't billed as much, right? And so this sort of competition to bill the most was huge and people would. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I worked two nights in a row, you know, I'd be like, you're crazy. But, you know, but it was what you were expected to do. And I think when you're in it, you don't see any other way to be because it just is what you need to do to get by. And, you know, yeah, there were times I worked stupid hours. There were time, I remember once I worked through, I had tonsillitis, really bad tonsillitis. Like I had fevers and I was at work wearing like five layers, including a big coat and I was still shivering. And I was like at my laptop and I'm like, I don't think I can even think. But, you know, for some reason it's like, you know, I need to be here and I need to keep going and I need to do this thing because I'm at the end of a deal and I need to keep going, right? And and I worked through it. And it was only after, I think it was two, three days later when the deal closed. Um, and I still remember I couldn't partake in the champagne on the last day, which really upset me because I was like, I've gone through this whole deal and I still can't even drink because I feel like shit. Sorry for swearing, by the way. And um, and then um, and then I went to the doctor and the doctor was like, you've got tonsillitis, you need to go home and rest. And I'm like, ah, that explains a lot. <laughs> you know, but you do, you just work through it because it's like this, you know, this is what the environment requires of you and you get used to it. Whereas when I first started in private practice, I remember my first all-nighter and I was living with mum and dad at the time and um, I came home the next day and my parents were like, how is this possible? How can they do this to you? This doesn't make any sense. How is this legal? You know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and I was like, yeah, I know, it's terrible and I don't know how I can do this. And so I was like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to say them. I think we need some time. We need to, like, do shifts or something as between me and the other juniors, right? And so we had this conversation, which was incredibly frightening, and I think they were all like, what on earth are you all talking about working in shifts for? But they were like, okay, we'll give you a bit of a break to go and have some sleep and you guys can work and you can go off and do whatever. 
and never had one of those conversations again because it was such an awkward conversation. So even though we got what we wanted, I was like, I'm not doing that again. And you just you just it, keep going. How much of this is expectations other others are actually placing on you versus the expectations that you're choosing to place on yourself? Because I've I've had countless people, mm. and especially especially mothers who are returning from mat leave, who will keep working and exhaust themselves to the point that they then it gets to like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. at night and they're like I'm exhausted I need to sleep and then they watch like two hours of Netflix because they finally got time for themselves and they wake up early the next day again and they go through it all over again it's a vicious cycle it's a vicious cycle Mm -hmm. and I think you know particularly when you're returning I think from parental leave I think it's it's tricky because um you do feel that you're being watched and so when you're leaving and this is a pre-pandemic world obviously without you know hybrid working and remote working and everything but you feel like you are being looked at when you have to leave at say five o'clock right to go pick up the kids or 4 30 or whatever it is and you feel like you're being watched when you come in that little bit later after having dropped off the kids now it doesn't matter that through the day you've had your head down working, 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 and you've engaged in less chit-chat because you've got, you know, in your mind that you need to leave at the end of the day and get back home. That doesn't matter. All that goes through your head is people are watching me as I leave, right? So I need to somehow prove to these people that I'm working. And it's weirdly the same thing that happens when you, in a pre-pandemic world or even now, when you're remote working is you taste you take less breaks like somehow you feel that you need to be at your laptop all the time right so that people know that you're there and that you're working and no one's watching you not really you know even when you're leaving the office most people are not going to notice some people will because some people are like that but you know most people won't and so yes there's an element of stuff that you take on yourself um 100 percent but you know equally i think it does go to people's biases and for mums i think it is a bit of a problem and equally for you know for men that work flexibly as well or that you know are involved in their kids lives it's it's a problem because when you are leaving early it doesn't matter how much work you're doing after hours you know sometimes it's that leaving early coming in a little bit later that people remember and then that bias often does play out against you so so I think there are two perspectives to it so I think the bias is very well and alive but I think equally yes we put a lot of burden on ourselves to do more and work more and to be seen to be doing more right and I the, the story you shared about, you know, women who will work, work, work and then go off and watch TV for two hours and then not have enough sleep, that was me during the pandemic, 100%, because I was a ball of stress during the day and trying to get through the day with, you know, two kids at home and then they would I'd do dinner and everything else. They'd finally get down to bed, but then I'd still need to do more work because I'd taken this time out to look after them right so you know it's weird you know I took this time out so I need to give the time back in and put you know do work and so then you then I would work for a bit longer and then it'd be like okay now I need to decompress right and so 
what does that look like? And often, yeah, that would look like sitting in front of the TV and watching Netflix or whatever it was. And then lo and behold, you find like, you know, it's silly o'clock and you're still awake. And then you have to start your day again. And then your child's up at night. So you've gotten disturbed sleep. You haven't had enough hours of sleep. And then you start the day again and it continues. So there definitely was a point for me, I think through the middle of 2021, um, I can't remember which lockdown it was because we had so many in Melbourne. Um, But um, I got to a point where I was just like, I'm burnt out and this is not work burnout. This is now parental burnout. I just am tired of parenting. Mm. And it was the combination of parenting and working and trying to manage it all that just was breaking me and I was like I need a break from all of it (laughs) you know not just work I need a break from being a parent for a little while so so yes I hear you it's 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 a it's a challenging one and I think sometimes we don't um spend enough time or effort leaning into self-care in those environments and I really did at that point I had to step back from it a little bit and go do I can't do all of this and so I need to I need to let some things go for a while and just um spend some time looking after me a little bit better I mean to to clarify and you mentioned as well it's for it's for all parents I uh it's just it's most common for mothers because I think that women tend to take on more of society's expectations mm. and in the, in regards to parenting role. Mm-hmm. Similarly, men tend to take on more of society's expectations about how well they perform or how successful they are in their career. And I suspect the bigger conversation here is that if you drop the male or female, you just say, my role is this, and I'm choosing this role, I'm choosing for my role to be this as a parent or as a successful entrepreneur or as someone mm-hmm. who works really hard in their career. And you choose that and you say, okay, I'm choosing this. What does that look like for me? Mm-hmm. And how do I balance the different parts of my life in order to have more alignment? Yeah, 100%. With- 100%. And this is um, actually exactly what I'm planning to do going forward is to work with um, specifically women in this space um, because I think it is a problem. I think, you know, we tie so much of our identities into being a mum, being a whatever profession you're in, so for me a lawyer, you know, that sometimes in amongst all of that we lose sense of who we are ourselves, mm-hmm. right, devoid yes. of these titles And so it's, you know, I think once you can understand, okay, who am I to begin with and what does that mean in terms of what I value, what I need out of life, what motivates me, what makes me passionate, what makes me get out of bed in the morning, what are the things that give me joy, you know, all of those sort of components, what gives me purpose, et cetera, then I think we're better able to step back from the things that we do in life, so the titles that we or the roles that we have, and go, what is serving me and what isn't serving me here, mm-hmm. right? And really look at things from a different lens because I think what often happens, particularly with women, as you said, but parents in general, including single dads, obviously, you know, I think 
have a very similar experience in this respect. But, you know, we become a parent and all of a sudden it's, okay, now I've got work, which I had before, which needs to continue as it was, and now I've got parenting. So that's just going to go on top of this, right? So suddenly it's this, you know, it's this giant sandwich of stuff that we have to deal with. And you don't take anything out of that sandwich. You just go like, I've just got to do it all somehow. Mm-hmm. I've just got to fit it all in. But sometimes I think we need to step back from that and say, okay, there are things that I can take out of this, you know, so what needs to give and where can I rely on other people? So if it's work, for example, are there areas that I, if I'm a leader, that I can delegate differently? If are there things that just don't actually need to be done? You know, am, are we like, can I reassess what I'm doing from a work perspective within my own sphere of control and look at it and go, where, where's the unnecessary stuff here? Like, am I spending five hours looking at something that could be done in two hours, you know, because I'm striving for perfectionism, right? Mm. Can that drop, you know? So it's just looking at these things a little bit differently and the same in our personal lives, right, in our, in our family environments, you know, what are the things I'm spending my energy on? You know, um, am I, you know, I don't know, overly concerned about um, mess in the house, for example, and is that eating up too much of my brain's, like, mental load? And it's hard not to, <laughs> and I know that, but, you know, sometimes we need to let it go, right? And I think this is, you know, something I think during the pandemic that I think a lot of parents learned I learned it you know my house was not clean my house was not tidy and you know what it was okay it was fine you know because there weren't enough hours in the day and you've just got to pick and choose where your priorities lie and I think this is something I think you know you only get better at once you've stepped back from it and gone what really matters you know, and if, say, for example, in that real, what really matters discussion, you identify that your own health matters, you know, and you're not making time for it in amongst everything else that you're doing, somehow you've got to make time for that. And that means you've got to take other things and subtract them. We're very good, I think, as people, and I do this too, at adding to our lives. We're not very good at subtracting. Yes. Um, which is why I suspect people struggle to let go of addictions as well, whether yeah. it's drinking too much or smoking or whatever addictions they have. Exactly. It's because they don't want to lose anything. Who yeah. wants to lose 20 kilos? I don't want to lose anything. <laughs> <laughs> You'd much yeah. rather gain, gain a healthy lifestyle. Yes. Which I think when we, when, we, when we recognize that in ourselves and we choose to master it, then we can find ways of actually changing the way we act because we change the way we perceive the world mm. and we change the way that we perceive our own actions as bringing us towards something yeah. rather than just getting rid of something because no one wants to get rid of stuff. Yep, 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 exactly. Exactly, um, I agree. And, and it sounds like from everything which you're sharing here, it really comes back to uh, personal responsibility. And um, mm-hmm. your yes, there are circumstances. Things can be really tough. It can be really difficult. It can be super challenging to prioritize yourself in amongst everything that's happening in your life and the world. Mm. But at the end of the day, you still choose what you do. Yes, a hundred percent. And the thing is, you know, 
we can look to workplaces to try and create better environments for us. We can, you know, point to um, governments to change things for the better and all the rest of it. And we should, and we should absolutely 100% do both of those things. But in the absence of change, there's only one person that's going to make a difference to your existing status quo, and that's you. You know, and I think, you know, so there definitely is an element of personal responsibility and whatever that looks like, you know, so if you're unhappy in if in the environment that you're in, are there things you can change from within it to make it a happier place for you? If they're not, do you need to change your environment? You know, sometimes that's what you need. You know, it's not mm-hmm. about making it work in that environment. It's about moving on to a different one, you know, but I, I think we do need to have an element of, responsibility for self in all of this as much as we might equally advocate for change in other areas as well so that brings up a question for me then Mm. uh, or a question for you if you could magically change one thing to make the world a better place what would it be oh why that one yeah one thing to make the world a better place you can magically change it if i can magically change it yeah that's a really interesting one. Let me think. Um, if I could magically change people in this world to be more empathetic and kind, I think that's probably what I would change because I think there is so much angst in this world and so many of our problems are created because of a lack of empathy and a lack of kindness in the world. I think I think that's probably what I would change. Don't think that's ever going to happen, but, you know, there it is. You said something that's magical. <laughs> well, you said, be more, you said be more empathetic and kind. And if you look at the whole thing, it's like if someone's like, oh, no, my goal is to have more money. Okay, here's a dollar. There you go. You have more money. Are you happy now? Are you happy now? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but are True. you are you talking about people being more empathetic and kind to each other or yes. to themselves? Oh, uh, both. I think I think both. I mm-hmm. think um, definitely. I think self compassion is something we are not good at, and I think we need to definitely have a lot more compassion for self. Um, but I think the empathy and kindness towards each other. You know, if I think about a lot of the. You know, even the conversations that sort of surround, you know, the diversity and inclusion space and the trolls that come out to play when people start talking about it on social media, for example, it's like, you know, if if people were more empathetic, that wouldn't happen because they would listen to what other people have to say, right? You know, whether or not they agree with them is a different thing. But, you know, it's that piece of not being in your own head and imposing your own experiences on people, but actually taking that time to try and understand where other people might be and where they might be coming from. And I think if we were better able as a humanity to do that, then I don't know that we'd have a lot of the issues that we have today. Mm. Which I'd imagine, like it's easy to see all the negatives in society today, but I'd imagine that we're a hell of a lot better than what we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. 100%. And I think, you know, the one thing that 
I think really excites me on that front is just the difference in conversations with um, my daughter in particular. My son's too young at the moment to have any of these conversations, but um, with my daughter in particular because they view the the world and the people within it from a very different lens than I had when I grew up. So, you know, even little things like, you know, my daughter came home from school last year sometime and she was like, oh, you know, this um, this boy in my class has two mums. And it was matter of fact. It wasn't a question. It was just a statement. It's like, oh, this is interesting, you know. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know. You know and then we, you know, we, we have friends ourselves, you know, in within our friendship circle that are gay. And so, like, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if, if our friends were to have a child, it'd be the same thing, right? You know, they'd have two dads. And so, yeah, and she was just genuinely just curious about how this worked and, you know, stuff. But it was it was a different conversation. Like it wasn't a like it wasn't a conversation I would have ever had as a child. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something that was even in my um awareness until I was far older, right? Because the world was different. You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, right? And so, you know, this was just becoming something that was being talked about a little bit more at that time but in its very early days right and very still very um uh stigmatized whereas i think now you know she has these conversations with me and they're just very open very um non-judgmental conversations and i'm like you know there's something right in the world when the when the kids, when kids are growing up to speak differently, think differently, behave differently. You know, I mean, she was, um, she came back uh, as another story. She came back from a gymnastics class a few weeks ago and she'd had one of the girls in the class who was being a little bit mean to her about the fact that she was younger and smaller and my daughter's quite energetic. She jumps around a lot, doesn't stay still very much. Anyway, so she was being teased by this girl and she was really upset about it and I got a little bit angry on her behalf, as you do as a parent. And, um, you know, and I was trying to control what I was saying because I was like, yeah, you're going to say something wrong now and you're going to say something you shouldn't say. But I was like, you know, it's because this other girl must be jealous of you, right, because you're good at gymnastics because you're younger and you're doing the same thing she's doing. And then I was like, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. And I said to her, um, is this other girl good at gymnastics? And I was like, I shouldn't be asking this because I know this is the wrong thing to ask and I know I'm, you know, opening space for a conversation that could go in the wrong direction. And my daughter said to me, "Uh, Mummy, I don't want to judge her. And I was like, (laughs) I've just been schooled. (laughs) This, You know, like this conversation that I thought was going to go downhill, she actually turned to me through her tears and through being really upset and said, I don't want to judge this girl that's bullying me. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, okay, you are the bigger person <laughs> I was in this conversation right now. And so, yeah, so it gives me hope, you know, that, that kids are growing up differently and they're um, – and look, and I think we should take, um, you know, some responsibility for that too. Like I think the way that we that we parent now is different to the way our parents parented and that's not that they we are better or that they were – 
worse or anything like that. It's a sign of the times. Things are different. The environment we're in is different. Our awareness is different. Our kids' awareness is different, you know, and it'll continue. The cycle will continue. So as they become parents, if they do become choose to become parents and are able to become parents, if they have their own kids, then that conversation, those conversations will probably be far more forward thinking than the conversations we have mm-hmm. today with our kids. So, you know, I'm hopeful that things are going in the right direction. Yeah, I like that. I like the amount of um, self-reflection that you have with this and continuing to challenge yourself. Mm. I remind of a, there have been a couple times where I've been like, just like, just sit still and eat your dinner with us. Yeah. Like your cut, like, do you see your cousins? They're all sitting still. I'm like, no, don't compare. Yeah. Cause then when the cousins do something wrong, she's going to be, see my cousins do it. I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> uh, and yeah. they're just, it's just, it can be agonizing going continuing to reflect on yourself that extent all the time can mm. be crazy mm. okay. so I, I do i do have a uh, a final question for you before we before i kind of do a little bit of summary of what i've heard you share and then you can add some more after uh but if you that it sounds like there are probably going to be three types of people or three types of uh, people in three types of phases who are um, listening to this hoping for some sort of inspiration and so I'd be curious about the key messages you'd want to share to each of them. Mm. The one would be like hardworking in career and business. Another would be parents who could mm. also be hardworking in career and business. And a final one would probably be people who are feeling a little bit lost in purpose and trying to work out what fulfills them and brings them more joy. Mm. What would be the key messages you'd share with each of those? Okay. So for the people that are feeling lost and without purpose, I would say... Mm. I think often we go to solutions before we actually reflect more deeply on self. And I think, you know, I think if you're feeling lost on what your purpose is, I would say really look within first and really try and understand who you are. And that means, you know, reflecting on your life journey, reflecting on the the major incidents in your life that have made you who you are and what they've taught you, you know, good and bad you know, reflecting on what you value. I mean, we talk about values a lot, but, you know, can you really identify what those values are? And I think once you understand all those pieces and the things that make you who you are, it's far easier to grasp onto what your purpose might be than Mm -hmm. if you just start thinking, I don't know what my purpose is, because in the abstract, it's hard to grasp purpose. So that's what I would say to them. To parents that are potentially um, juggling, working and parenting, I would say, you know, I think as we were discussing before, you know, I think sometimes we need to step back from it all and go what is serving me and what isn't serving me and where can I, where can things drop and where, so where, where can I subtract from my life because we end up in this cycle of busyness and it's hard sometimes to break this cycle of busyness and to find the time to be yourself outside of these two titles or roles that you have. And so I would say really stepping back and trying to think about the things that, you know, you want in your life and the things that you don't need in your life. And again, that comes back to some of what what I said about the purpose 
driven, mm-hmm. you know, the people people that are lost with purpose, it's reflecting a little bit first and then looking at what it is that can drop. Now, for people that are career-minded and that are, so are these people that are already successful or people that are striving for success, where, where are they in mm-hmm. their journey? Uh, I'd imagine I'd imagine both, and I'd imagine that most people who are striving for success usually tend to have more success already as well. So they're mm. somewhere on the corporate ladder. They're working their way up. They maybe they've gotten nice and high where they are, and mm. they just want to keep learning to grow. That's the reason they got there in the first place. Mm. What would you say to them? Well, I would say, I mean, there's nothing wrong in that. There's nothing wrong in wanting to continue to succeed. There's nothing wrong in wanting to continue to grow. I would just say, you know, make sure you're keeping room in amongst that success for the things that fill your cup that are not directly connected to your job because it's very easy to get all consumed by work and by a title and... You know, I think when you look back on life, you want to be able to say, I filled my cup, you know, with things that mattered. And if if that success and that career and, you know, if that's what fills your cup and that's it, fair enough. But for many people, I think, you know, they'll look back and they'll go, there are other things I could have done or should have done. And so I think, you know, the learning of the last two years is that, we need to proactively reach out and fill that cup and because life is uncertain, you know. Yeah, well said and well summarized for that as well. People just need to make their own decisions based off what's most yeah. important. And I guess if someone's made it so far in their career without thinking why they want to get that far in their career, they're going to have a wake-up call eventually. Yeah. And it might be it might be for them when they get into their 60s, 70s and they decide to stop working and then, Something happens yes. uh, and they've got to reflect and they've finally got time to think or maybe something happens which just surprises them. Exactly. And Exactly. And I think that's I think that's right. And, you know, I've been reflecting on this a lot in the last two months because obviously I left my job and so I've been in this in-between phase of not having a title, right, mm. other than mum, which will continue for life. But, you know, um, so it's, you know, who am I outside this title that I hold, right? And and what does that mean? And how do I describe myself to people? You know, and I think that's something that I think is important for people that are on that ladder to reflect on. Had If you were to take away your title and your job overnight and worse things have happened to people, you know, mm-hmm. if that was to happen to you, who are you? And what would you say? And I think it's important to think about that and to, and I think that can help people to reflect on what you're doing to fill your cup. Because if you don't have a ready-made answer to that, I'd say, you know, possibly it's time for a little bit more reflection. Yeah, you got some work to do. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll, try and make, I'll try and make a brief with a summary of what we've mostly spoken about. Um, I remember you were defining uh, success and you were talking about it and you're saying it used to just be about career-driven and corporate ladder and like how, how high you're able to climb up. And the last few years have taught you that there's more to life than, mm. just, uh, than just success. And you've got to find the things that really fulfill you. And so part of that is really focusing on joy, not satisfaction, and not having regrets. 
Mm-hmm. So you've always had satisfaction. You felt challenged. You around good people. You've enjoyed what you do. You get paid well. Uh, but then there's this element of joy which you found was lacking, and that's a deeper meaning. I think you mentioned legacy as well. Legacy mm. to leave behind, mm. and something more in service for others in spaces where you can create change, which you're passionate about it. Over overall, your journey was. Growing up in an Indian household in Australia, especially moving a lot until eight, and you met the stereotype, and you expected to get married, and you also had these expectations to be a high achiever, and you took a lot of them on board and took them within yourself, and you loved this idea of what law is and human rights and civil rights, and then got sucked into the corporate world, and you didn't manage to leave, mm-hmm. and you had these terrible experiences in London, like a manager giving you a probation review while doing golf swings and not looking at you. And ultimately, you kept on that path because you weren't you weren't actively choosing where you wanted to be. Mm. And we spoke about the active choice of the companies you work at and the ethics. And we spoke a fair bit about um, the ethics behind the company you're working at, uh, the tobacco company, and then what you were choosing to do within it, and the reasons you ended up choosing it as well, and how you found a new perspective from viewing it from another side, which was basically your way of creating a conversation within yourself from seeing it from outside and then within and then talking to a whole lot of people about it, but probably choosing not to. Mm. And then we spoke a lot about balancing parenting and work. And it sounds like most of the challenges that you've faced between parenting and work was through your uh, experiences of pregnancy specifically and then having postnatal depression and having a having your daughter who wasn't able to feed and wasn't able to sleep and it was just can't handle this and then you just wear this mask at work. And it it took quite a while until you finally learned to address that because you had all of this grief and anxiety that had built up within you and it came from everything, from societies, from Mm. expectations you had of yourself, expectations that others had of you, trying to have conversations about death of the three-year-old and and then feeling like you got to hide everything and then feeling all this anxiety which might have made other pregnancies harder as well and you eventually realized that when you could express how you feel from a colleague just asking you if you're okay it really helped you with the healing process and you found you weren't able to talk about it so you started writing about it and then you started using especially LinkedIn, but social media as a platform to be able to write about it. And you learned the power of being vulnerable and having your own psychological safety. And ultimately, you're able to build resilience through adversity. And you decided to make these challenges that you have a strength. And you've also decided to find the strength that you have, which other people haven't had the same privilege, to be able to speak for those that you can relate to, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't drain them as much. And one of the biggest challenges that you had in terms of fitting in was a lot about your skin color. But it sounds like it wasn't so much about skin color, at least not for you, skin color from other people in society, like in work environments or whatever, saying, you know what, Nitty, uh, I don't know, like we, we've already got a dark-skinned person in the organization who's got that role or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. For you, it was more from your upbringing, and being told that if you're fairer, you're more beautiful and it affected your self-esteem and there were all these fairness creams and uh, you, you, you 
were always quite shy as a child when you were growing up. And so you always struggled to fit in, but those things would have just exacerbated it. Yeah. And ultimately you've learned to be louder and different, even when you're uncomfortable in different circumstances, whenever you need to be right. And you've found that you feel that things are inauthentic, but then you've realized that you've got to play a game. And if you're not playing the game here, you're just playing it without knowing and that's even worse right mm -hmm, imagine mm -hmm. playing a game where you don't know the rules and you don't yeah, even know yeah. that you're throwing dice and ah. mm -hmm. and you've you've had to deal with so many different things in your career and in the growth of your career burnout uh, the cutthroat legal system the badge of honor having an all-nighter the extreme stress that you can get as well the lack of understanding or anything that comes along with it and we spoke a little bit about gender equality and probably parenting equality and flexibility versus equality and then uh, really being able to try and to identify the difference for yourself. Mm. And you found that the way to be as flexible as possible and doing the right things while you got so much on is I think you had, I think your questions were, who am I? What do I value? What am I passionate about? What gives me purpose? And what is and isn't serving me? And how we're great at adding on to our plate, but terrible at taking it away. We might have a sandwich and just keep putting more and more in. And as you were sharing that, I was thinking of an analogy of you just keep putting more in and it's all great until you take a bite, the beetroot falls down and stains your clothes. <laughs> and maybe maybe so you just need some help with this. Someone Maybe someone will guide you, take out that lettuce, it's too big. Or maybe someone will say, hey, why don't you put a bib on? That might help you. Great analogy. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and you wish that the world would just ultimately have more empathy and kindness for people towards each other, but then also towards themselves. And we spoke about how we have a lot of hope for our next generations, at least for our kids, but hopefully for other people's kids yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. to be able to further that change. Yeah. Uh, is, is there anything else which you'd like to share or correct or change in what I just said? No, I don't think so. I think that was a pretty accurate summary. It was good. Cool. Anything else you want to share with the world before we finish off? No, I don't I don't think so. Look, I think, you know, um I think the thing that I've learned the most over the last few years in particular is the importance of reflecting on self and reflecting on who you are and it seems a bit silly sometimes to say that, but I don't think we spend enough time with ourselves. You know, we get busy spending time with other people and sometimes I think we forget to really reflect on who we are and what we need, not just want, but need out of life. And I think that's something I think we can all spend some time doing more of. And I think the more we do it, the more intentionally we can live our lives and 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 reach for success, whatever success means to, you know, you as an individual person, because, you know, what I've learned over time is success is, is, is more than just, you know, work. It's actually, you know, how am I succeeding as a parent? Am I, you know, helping my daughter navigate this world um, in a way that serves her? Um, am I, doing the things for myself that I need to do to look after me, you know, including looking after my health, for example, you know, am I happy because that is success, right? You know, all, all these things. And I think you only get to that point of 
understanding what that looks like if you understand who you are first. Well said. Thank you for sharing, Nindy. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Success with Purpose, and I also hope that you feel capable to apply some of the perspectives and learnings from this episode in your own life. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to like and subscribe below. And until next time, live with purpose. Thank you.